Well, hello and welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley and we're here to talk all things leadership. Uh, my special guest today is uh, Shabnam Chowdhury, who until her retirement last year was one of the UK's uh, most senior female police officers of colour. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting to talk leadership, race and police and maybe look at the US from the outside uh, and a very personal perspective. So uh, welcome Shabnam. Thank you, David. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on your podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and thank you for for coming along. I keep starting these off by saying this is going to be a different one, and this is going to be a different one. I think I've got a tagline because uh, for starters, we've got to tune people into listening to both of our accents, which are about two hundred miles apart uh, in the UK. But uh, if I understand your a little bit about your history, you're born in Pakistan, raised in the East End of London and finally retired as a detective superintendent from what we would know over here as Scotland Yard. That's right. Yes, I was all those things. And uh, yes, retired you, at Scotland Yard. Can you fill in the gaps between those two, two ends? Uh, yes. Uh, so um, we were born in Karachi in Pakistan. Um, at the um, 18 months of age, my father put myself and my six brothers and sisters into a van um, and uh, with a mattress on the floor of it and drove us across six continents, uh, arrived in the UK and settled in the east end of London, uh, you could probably tell by the accent, uh, in a place called East Ham, where I grew up. I went to school there, I was educated there. I worked there in uh, retail menswear as a manageress and a menswear buyer. Um, before I started having a real interest in joining the police service. Um, and the interest came really from lots of police officers that used to come into the shop that I used to work in at the time and pointed out that I was very streetwise and quite um, savvy and feisty, as you, if you like, and that I'd probably make a really good copper, as they say, in the East End. So I started that journey. Um, took me a long time, seven years, four attempts. I was too young, I was too skinny, I didn't have enough life experience. I found a letter that dated back to 85, I think it was, where it said that I needed to put a stone on. So I took up bodybuilding, um, had the absolute pleasure to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger in my gym because uh, the, the trainers there knew him very well. Um, and yeah, the determination got me into policing and started my career in the East End of London in Bethnal Green, Tower Hamlets. Which we've been discussing, we kind of we maybe nearly crossed paths because uh, you're currently living five minutes away from the police station that I used to work at when in my brief time as a cop. And I would say that I got in at 18 and a half and I was way too young to be a cop. And uh, But that gets into the root of why they're letting me in at 18 and a half and they're not letting you in is potentially a question that we might be asking later on. Well, yeah, it's interesting because obviously you, you're from, uh, you were from Leeds and I was from, you know, from London, which would have been ideal in terms of policing, um, you know, the, the, the metropole. So um, whatever reason, it didn't work at the time, but um, I wasn't <laughs> giving up. Yeah, well, and good for you for keeping on trying, because I think that's one of the questions I was going to ask today a little bit about is how we make our police forces look more like the communities that we police. And, and way back in the 80s, when I joined up, you're right, I don't think, I think there was one person in my class from London. 
and you get your Scotsman and your Yorkshireman and the occasional Liverpudlian. Shout out to Paul Schofield there. But the, uh, um, most of them weren't from London. But that's a challenge that, as we look over here, it's a challenge to make people look and feel and be from the community, which I mean, you, you've worked all your time in the East End of London where you grew up. I did. I served at every East London borough, which is really unusual for policing in, in the first instance, and certainly on the front line, as from constable right through to superintendents, I always managed boroughs. I did a stint at Scotland Yard, but I also did a stint with the Olympics. Um, but probably out of 30 years, um, a lot of it was local policing um, with uh, a local knowledge of the various parts of East London. Right. Um, but yeah, so yeah, challenging, but but yeah. And as a detective superintendent, you'd be responsible for the uh, detective side of a large area of East London. Yeah, that's right. So as a detective superintendent, I would have been responsible for, when I finished, three boroughs. So um, partly, in fact, Barkingside, as you mentioned, which came under Redbridge. And so I was responsible for Redbridge, Havering and Barking and Dagenham, which were very big boroughs, uh, huge geographical areas and was responsible for, um, I was head of safeguarding. So the really challenging ends of policing, the real high risk, high harm areas of policing, whether it's um, hunting um, those that are responsible for serious crimes or safeguarding young children um, or investigating local sort of crimes in terms of whether it's, you know, it could be kidnapping, could be serious assaults, it could be fraud, a whole range of um, Sort of criminal activity but yeah very difficult because you know you're responsible for something like 400 members of staff which you know if I'm honest with you I didn't really get to meet all of them because mm -hmm. it's not possible physically to to get around to meet them all but I loved it <laughs> well that's good and, and you know we connected because I was reading an article on the BBC and that you got to that senior rank despite a whole bunch of challenges that seemed to be in your way and and uh, what were some of the challenges you faced in, in particular about being a woman of colour in the in the police force? Yeah, I think when you just mentioned about when you joined, there were very few, well, there were hardly any who was predominantly white. Even when I did join, when I used to, to uh, patrol the streets of Bethel Green, there was a programme called The Bill, which you probably remember. With the big feet. I was consistently stopped by members of the public because there was one Asian girl in the bill and she was an actress and they thought I was the actress from the bill. They didn't believe that it was possible for an Asian woman to be in the police service and because it was so incredibly rare. So, um, you know, the challenges I had was, look, when you join policing, particularly in the late 80s, early 90s, there's language you know if i put it in inverted commas that you refer to as banter you know so i gave as good as i got you know there would be lots of banter within policing there will be you know people you know mocking whether it's your color whether it's your gender whether it's your race or whatever but it was all part and parcel of policing wrong on every level because actually as time moved on and some of the challenges that we had in policing became more and more prevalent in terms of how we dealt with minority communities we knew that with the death of Stephen Lawrence, as you will know about, um, how challenging it was and how badly we dealt with that. So really, for me, the, the, the challenges that I had weren't around the banter. It was actually more insidious. It was more around when I applied for promotion processes. And that was 
consistent throughout my career. So when I applied for a promotion process, literally just as I submit my application, I'd get called in by the senior managers to say, oh, six months ago, you didn't take a statement. Uh, four months ago, you left some property on your desk. And in, I didn't get what was going on in the early stages. I thought, okay, so why didn't you tell me that six months ago, four months ago? And it became evident when I submit the application and then they rejected the application process by saying that she hasn't performed well. She's only done well for the popular diversity of the borough, which is a real insult to my intelligence, really, um, as, a, as a woman of colour and as a, as a credible police officer. So, sadly, um, you know, that sort of escalated uh, when I, uh, I got to Barkingside and Loughton Police Station. Because of what happened with Stephen Lawrence in 1999, we were labelled institutional racist. What happened was that um, they introduced community race relations training. And it was one of those classes that somebody made some really grossly offensive comments about Muslims, about Jewish community, about Sikhs. And nobody else stood up to it. There were senior officers there, more senior than myself. But I found it offensive and I literally left the class and didn't go back that day and then asked for an apology. And that became an issue. Because people say, right. if you apologise, you're admitting guilt. Actually, you're not. You need to nip it in the bud. You need to make that apology. You need to understand that you can cause offence because of somebody's cultural beliefs or you know, religion or, 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 or upbringing. And actually, by just making an apology, you learn, you understand, you deal with it and you move on. So that's kind of the stuff in the early stages. And then um, you read about the investigation in 2017. That was a catalogue of things over 30 years that had gone on, on and off over my service, that really when I was investigated for an absolute load of nonsense and received words of advice in the end, um, that really was the sort of final sort of straw for me. Uh, so I finished my service just over 30 years when I was hoping to stay for about 35. Right. So, and, and that's the fascinating thing for me, that despite your local knowledge, your love for the police, you've obviously been successful, you got through the, the rank structure in a way, you uh, went from uniform to uh, the CID, the, the detective side of things, that, that there would still be these things that were brought up as little obstacles because there was some level of institutionalised racism in the organisation. That's right. I'm very sadly it was. And look, people often even now when I did the article they said well if it was that bad why didn't you leave well number one I love the job and number two if I left I would have given up <laughs> number three if I'd have left I'd have closed the door for any other minority that wanted to go into the world of CID into the world of criminal investigations I was so rare in that area of business that for me it was important to keep the door open to actually start campaigning rather than sit and cry about it, which I did a lot, I can assure you. But at the same time, I thought, okay, so I can do something. I can make a difference here. So I started doing a lot of campaigning. I worked with four commissioners in my service, challenging them, um, you know, holding them to account, holding large-scale events, uh, encouraging more black and minority officers to be into the areas of, you know, specialised policing areas so that we could be more representative. Because if you're in the Counter-Terrorism Command, you want people from a Muslim background, you want people from a Somali or, uh, you know, other types of background who understand communities, who can give you a better insight into why people behave in a certain way and how you can bridge those gaps. 
with your experience, with your cultural experience. Yeah, you send some Yorkshireman in a barber jacket into that area, they all know where <laughs> what he's carrying in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because, you know, even back in the 80s, um, I remember being on a carrier, which is the, you know, the old police term for 12 cops in a van, 12 thugs in a van quite often. And we stopped a, a black guy in a car in Tottenham and 11 of them got out of the car to check it out. And I just thought that was completely and utterly unnecessary. And I stayed in the van. Now, part of it is I'm inherently lazy. That's probably got something to do with it, but it just didn't seem right. And then later got thrown out the window outside of Tottenham Nick because that was all part of the banter. And it all, again, it didn't seem right. Now, I wasn't mature enough to get what was going on as deeply back then, but there's things that just uh, didn't seem right. And when, when you look now at what's going on in the US as we come over here, what's your take on what you're seeing happen around the uh, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter kind of situation that's really, really been highlighted? Yeah, I think um, from sitting back in the UK, I see it from two perspectives, actually. I see it from the perspective of policing and I see it from the perspective of communities. I mean, what happened to George Floyd was just incomprehensible. And I defy anybody, anybody not to be moved and heartbroken by what they witnessed. So that was the first part of it. And sadly, my perception uh, is that within sort of USA policing, that there's probably a little bit more of that that goes on in terms of where, how black members of the community are dealt with by, um, you know, people of authority, policing, for example. And I think that that just highlighted it. So there's that aspect of it, but then there's the aspect of it from the police perspective. So as a serving police officer previously, I feel for, you know, you can't blanket label all police officers as behaving in that way. I would say that the large percentage of police officers are there to serve communities, to do a job and to work hard. And the difference with USA police into UK is we have 43 police forces. My understanding is you have thousands yeah. so, and they all operate differently. There's no real set way. You know, we have systems, processes and procedures in place for the Metropolitan Police as, as we do for 43 forces. And somewhere along the line, they do inter, interlink. Whereas in the USA, I think that's the difference. And I think that is where the real challenges lie for policing across um, USA. And also in areas where you will get predominantly white people uh, or you'll get predominantly black people, but you may get predominantly white officers that don't seem to understand what the differences are. That is why you need to be so much more representative. Which goes down to your experience grow, uh, starting your career in the East End, you look like a lot of the people that lived and worked around Ilford and Stoke Newington and, and places like that in the, in the East End. Uh, it's a lot easier to connect, to blend in, to even gather intelligence if you're connecting to that community, I, I, I'm guessing. And so that leads me to, that, to another question, which is what do law enforcement agencies need to do in order to recruit? Because I think that's where the, the nub of one of the challenges is. There's not the recruiting in the minority areas or the, the people of color. That, um, that So then the, you, it's rare to find a senior officer like you because... You know, I, I just showed you the picture of my Hendon graduating <laughs> class and it's a bunch of white folks. So you just do the sheer numbers. 20 years later, it's going to be a bunch of white folks in a leadership role. 
So what do police agencies need to be doing to recruit the right people? Well, for number one, you need to get the people that do the job that are people of colour that can actually talk about it and talk about it with from an honest perspective. Don't paint your police service as a wonderful, great profession that it is. Be honest about it. Explain that there are challenges. Explain that there are people within the organisation that have those hidden, you know, inherent behaviours towards black or Asian people and that the reason that you need people of colour is because you need to eradicate that type of behaviour. But also paint the picture of what the importance is of being a person of colour. Do you have languages? Do you understand the culture? Do you understand the community? When you're dealing with, you know, people from black or minority communities, what is it that you, as a serving officer, understand about that community? And actually, do you speak the language? When I say the language, I don't mean the language as in Punjabi or do or, or, or whatever. I'm talking about the language as do you understand the culture? Do you mm. understand when there are people that come from broken homes that you may have experienced some of that yourself? And therefore, you're a little bit more sympathetic and more empathetic. Just going on to the, um, the recruitment around it, in, certainly in London, we have huge recruitment drives and we get into university, we get into schools, we get into colleges. Um, I don't know if you have anything that's similar to cadets over there, but we get the cadets in at a younger age. We have voluntary police services, so we encourage people to join as a voluntary police officer, get to wear the uniform, get to do the training, get to pay all their fares and so on. You don't get paid, but you get a certain, and you have a full-time job if that's what you want to do. But actually it gives you a feel for what policing is about. And that's where then we then go into recruiting people. And we get a huge amount of minorities that go into the special constabularies, into voluntary policing and parts of um, the services. So you need to look into where else in the police service, whether you've got civilian staff, to actually look and feel like the communities that you're serving and would they be better off serving as, as you know, police officers. You need huge campaigns. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if that's what they do over there, you know, if they do enough of it even. Well, and I think that's an interesting insight because you're, you're saying, hey, I, we should be talking to people like you who've been in there and done it. And let's talk about the dirty side as well as the, the positives and the need for more people of colour as, as representatives in the police force. But let's have an honest conversation about it. And let's make sure that leaders are having an honest conversation about it so that uh, you're saying why it's important that you're there and, and being honest about the fact that there's going to be some you call it banter there's going to be some resistance there's going to be some stuff that is just wrong but it's up to the people around it, both the people of color and the white allies if you like to step up to that and say no that's no longer the police service that we want exactly that and you cannot sit there in complicit silence and watch other people being victimized or vilified or you know Um, suffering in a way that you know that something is not right and you're sitting back and allowing it to happen so they're the areas just coming on to the leadership in policing some of the aspects of policing for me have been disappointing it's only now that since we've had the black lives matter that actually i've never seen more senior officers who now stepping up to the mark and actually realizing that they need to to be honest and and talk about the challenges and the systemic problems that they've got within their own sort of portfolios and their areas of business. That's not happening enough. That right. needs to happen more. And I would suspect it's exactly the same because what happens, leaders, police officers, white or black, whatever, they go, the minute you tell them that there's a problem about them collectively as a force, they all go on the defensive. Mm-hmm. And they'll all go on the defensive. We're not like that. We don't have that problem. 
well, sorry, but you do have that problem. I know you have that problem because I've sat there in the middle of that problem and I've tried to, you know, I've run huge events where I've done complete uh, analytical reviews afterwards. I've shared it with policing and this is a fact for, for many forces. What happens to those reviews? They get brushed under the carpet. They get right. ignored. And now they're talking about bringing back all of those reviews and start looking at what the problems were. And I think it's the same, I've no doubt in, in you know, America, um, that the USA, that there are senior leaders out there that need to step up to the mark and actually acknowledge. I've got, the minute you acknowledge your problems here, that's half your battle that, you, but, that you've achieved. You know, it's interesting the way you frame it because uh, in our latest book, we talk about behaviors like defensiveness, attacking, avoiding, ignoring, are all what we call red path behaviors. And we say, if you're doing one of those, you're part of the problem. So the first thing you have to do is to stop being part of the problem and stop being defensive, stop attacking in order to engage and have the conversation about how we solve this moving forward, which sometimes has to admit that I've done something wrong and that we are inherently biased. We have some issues there, but that needs to be the first step in order to have that conversation going the right, the right direction. Yeah, I think as a leader, there's no shame in saying, actually, I'm, I'm you know, embarrassed that we have got some problems here. We've got some really great stuff going on here, but actually we've got some issues here, particularly around the race agenda, particularly around stop and search, for example, within the Metropolitan Police. You know, stop and search is a real issue for black communities and for minority communities because they feel that they've been disproportionately targeted. Now, stop and search is an, an incredibly effective tool. It's a must-use tool. I absolutely advocate and support it. But equally, when you stop and search someone, have a little bit of respect. Have the conversation with them. Have a dialogue with them. Don't just dive in and say, I'm going to search you for drugs because I can smell cannabis around you. Engage. Have that conversation. Listen to what the person is telling you. These are the areas that now, as a police service, we're starting to look at. We're working very closely. We, when I say we, not me anymore, but police leaders are now working more closely with communities than I think they probably really were before because they really desperately want to get this right. And I think that is a real positive in itself. What's happened with Black Lives Matter, the tragic murder, the despicable murder of George Floyd has been a real wake up call globally. And I think sadly um, he had to suffer in that way but let's just hope that we don't get more situations like that right. anywhere in the world. Yeah, and you, you can go back and name the names for however many years, but you kind of hope that every time that this is the last one and that the momentum that we've got now is is going to move us forward. But And it sounds like you're saying, hey, in the UK, you're seeing a lot more of that where uh, police leaders are, are stepping up to the plate and saying and acknowledging we've got a problem and we've got to do something about it. Definitely. And, and it's not just police leaders in the, the London force. I'm talking police leaders nationally. They've started to put some real plans together. Let action speak louder than words. All right. And I had 30 odd years policing experience. And I can tell you that a huge amount changed after Stephen Lawrence. But equally, there was a lot that was not um, sufficient. You know, now is the time to now start really reflecting where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong after Stephen Lawrence's murder? And what more can we now be doing because of what's happened with George Floyd and because of what black and minority, you know, people that are coming out. I get criticised for speaking up. I didn't just speak up. I spoke up for 30 years and to a degree that was to my detriment. But I don't care. 
you know, if my voice is going to be heard and it's going to help make a change and it makes change for the better, then I can live with negative perceptions of me. Right. So whatever the Daily Mail says, you can live with. <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Mail will always say what it wants to say. Yeah. But, but, and I, I think that, again, is a matter of, hey, I've got to keep an eye on the greater good. And sometimes that may hurt me personally a little bit, but uh, that willingness to step into the, the fray, uh, we have to do that, otherwise nothing changes. Yeah, there's a saying, well, I say, keep your eyes on the prize. And for me, the prize in policing is having that better bonded relationship with communities. And if you've got that, then that's a huge price, a huge prize. Uh, well, thank you for uh, for being willing to share and for joining us today, Shabnam. And um, I appreciate you taking the time and. Uh, finding a time that's five hours apart to chat and maybe we can have you on uh, sometime later in the year and see if we're making any progress with this but uh, I really appreciate connecting this is the Humanity Leadership Podcast I'm David Wheatley thanks to Brian Spencer and Finkel for the music please share the feedback suggestions who you'd like to hear from I can be contacted at humanity.com go to iTunes like subscribe and give us a review please to make it easier for others to find us uh, we'll see you next time Shabnam thank you very much Thank you very much indeed. An absolute pleasure. Um, and stay healthy, everybody. Thanks.